Hello, everyone. There is arguably no single preventive health intervention more cost-effective than immunisation. Well, that's according to the World Health Organization, the WHO. Its Director General, Dr Chan, estimates that at least 10 million deaths were prevented between 2010 and 2015, thanks to vaccinations. Published in June 2017 in the Journal of Human Vaccines and Immunotherapeutics was an article with the headline, The Overlooked Dangers of Anti-Vaccination Groups' Social Media Presence. It's a really interesting read, especially when you consider the power that social media has in today's world. Not long ago, I recorded a podcast on the dangers of fake medical news, and social media was instrumental in the dissemination of these damaging false reports. Why would anyone be anti-vaccine? Well, that's an area which I plan to discuss in another podcast, where I'll also be asking the question, should childhood vaccinations be made compulsory? But in this podcast, however, so I just wanted to set the scene for some future ones. But in this podcast, uh, what I want to do is just a bit of an introduction to vaccines in general. Why are they? And how exactly do they convey protection? Now, I'll be discussing some quite in-depth technical areas of immunology here. But hopefully I'll be able to give you a deeper insight into the biology of vaccinations. So let's start with what we mean by a vaccine. It's essentially the administration of a weak or dead pathogen. So let's just break that sentence down for a moment. By pathogen, I'm referring to an organism which causes disease. So a bacterium or a virus, for example. When I say administration, I mean I mean injection, but vaccines can be given orally. But most of us have the intramuscular injections, like those given in the upper arm, directly into the deltoid muscle. I said that the pathogen is weak. Or dead? Well, that's a fairly obvious point. I mean, even those who are misinformed about vaccines understand that giving someone a live, harmful version of the pathogen is unlikely to yield the desired effects. The pathogen that is given is weakened. We say that it's been attenuated. Now, virulence is a measure of how harmful or deadly something can be. So this weakened form is of lower virulence. So it's therefore less harmful to the body. But it is still live sample, though. The vaccine could, however, having said that, comprise of dead matter. Simply culturing uh, viral or bacterial particles and then heating them would be sufficient to kill them. Medical professionals could also give subunits of the microorganism or even a product of the microorganism, like a toxin. All of these that I'm describing would trigger the exact same thing in the body an immune response, enough to defend itself, and that's the crucial element here. The vaccine is designed to deliberately stimulate an immune response, the why we're just going to get, we're getting into. Now, vaccines trigger what we call a specific immune response, as opposed to non-specific. Non-specific responses to disease are immediate and everyone has the same response regardless of the pathogen that we're talking about. So 
just to very quickly branch off and expand on that idea a little more, as I think it, it puts this kind of podcast and things generally in a better context, non-specific responses to disease are things that we all kind of have in common, are our natural defences, if you like. So the whole respiratory tract is lined with mucus and cilia, little hairs, which trapped bacteria before they reach the lungs. Normal flora. So by that I mean microorganisms present on the skin, but also lining of present on the lining of the digestive tract in the vagina. They compete with potential pathogens, not just for sites on our body, but for nutrients. The cells in the outer layer of the skin contain a protein called keratin, and the keratin fibres make the cells really tough and virtually impermeable to microbes. Tear fluid, even, contains lysozyme enzymes uh, that destroy bacteria. Harmless bacteria in the reproductive pastures create unfavourable acidic environments for other pathogens, although some say that has a bit of a limited effect. The stomach. Now, most people are aware that the stomach contains or produces strong hydrochloric acid. That kills most microbes. All of these we naturally just make use of. Vaccines, though, take things a step further. Vaccines are required to prevent infections that, in a nutshell, bypass these defences. The kinds of pathogens that we vaccinate against today are not merely stopped by the things that I've just mentioned. One crucial step in the vaccine's primary immune response, as we call it, is stimulation of phagocytosis. Now, I should just point out at this stage that phagocytosis is part of the non-specific response to disease too. Basically, there are two main types of white blood cell, lymphocytes and phagocytes. Phagocytosis is the breakdown of large particles, like pathogens, by phagocytes before they cause harm. Now, they're engulfed within vesicles on which digestive enzymes act. Histamine is released, and that causes dilation of the blood vessels to get phagocytes to the site of infection quicker. And now what you find is that that causes inflammation and pus will start to form, and pus is essentially just dead pathogen and phagocytes. Now, our bodies utilise this mechanism of action during a primary immune response that a vaccine will stimulate. So let's pick up the story of giving that vaccine. So here's just a, just a very quick summary of events. So you give the harmless pathogen which has antigens on its surface. Those antigens trigger an immune response by lymphocytes. The lymphocytes go on to produce antibodies to fight the pathogen. Some of those lymphocytes will remain in the blood as memory cells and they help the body to defend against any future attack from the same antigen. And should the real harmful pathogen be encountered, then the body has a faster recognition process and method of fighting it. Vaccines here are ultimately providing long-term immunity, helping to control the spread of disease. Now they are part of our specific response to disease where the response is slower but longer lasting and where the response to each pathogen or antigen more precisely is specific as the name suggests now what i'd like to do for a couple of minutes is delve deeper into that short summary to look at exactly what is going on inside the body when a vaccine is administered for this we just need to define a few things, namely what the word antigen actually means, and also the differences between T-cells and things called B-cells. Now, an antigen is a chemical molecule that stimulates an immune response, basically, and it can include surface proteins on pathogens, on foreign cells, 
toxins, it can include damaged or abnormal cells, any of those. So surface proteins on any of those listed, pathogens, foreign cells, toxins, damaged or abnormal cells. Now the immune system will recognize such molecules as non-self or foreign and it produces specific antibodies against them. B cells, known specifically as B lymphocytes, are a type of white blood cell that arise from stem cells in bone marrow. They mature in the bone marrow, hence the B uh, cell name, and these are the ones that will go on to produce antibodies. Now these cells respond to foreign material outside of body cells, including bacteria and viruses. In contrast, T cells, and we'll obviously, I'll talk more in detail about these shortly, T cells or T lymphocytes, also arise from stem cells in bone marrow, but they mature in the thymus gland, hence the T for thymus, the T cell name. Now these T cells do not produce antibodies and they respond to foreign material inside body cells, such as those altered by viruses or, or cancer even. They also respond to transplanted tissues. It's the cell mediated response where the story really begins. So with these T cells ultimately. When you give someone a vaccine, as I said earlier, the antigens on the surface of that pathogen trigger a response in the body. Now, the vaccine may contain a live, albeit attenuated form, and that would still retain the ability to invade body cells. Now, T cells respond to body cells that have been invaded by non-self material. That's because of something called antigen presentation. So, infected body cells phagocytes and even cancer cells can express antigens from a pathogen on their outer membrane or on the outer membrane surface rather that's something called cell mediated immunity as it involves antigens presented on body cells and not merely antigens just floating if you like in body fluids the first step therefore in the primary immune response is antigen presentation so macrophages, which are large phagocytic white blood cells, if we use those as an example, will take in pathogens by phagocytosis. So this pathogen could be the pathogen deliberately given in the form of a vaccine. Antigens from the pathogen, from the destroyed pathogen, essentially, are displayed on the surface of the cell and they're bound to a membrane protein. Now that membrane protein is called MHC, technically MHC class 2. Cells called helper T-cells have receptors that are complementary in shape to those presented antigens and they bind. Now what that does is activate the helper T-cell. Now that helper T-cell will then undergo mitosis or cell division and produce a whole clone of T-cells. So if we just back up for a moment and just say again what happens. So you give the vaccine, this vaccine that contains this pathogen has antigens on the surface the pathogen will potentially infect a body cell. T cells will respond to that by finding the pathogen, engulfing it, expressing its antigens on the surface, and by doing so, triggering the production and cloning of these T cells. Now, this has a number of consequences. First of all, it could stimulate further phagocytosis, which if you think... If you think about phagocytes as being a bit like Pac-Man in a way, it will just help to mop up any invaders that are in the body. What it will also do is stimulate the production of cytotoxic T-cells. 
And you sometimes see those written in text as a capital letter T with a small lowercase c next to it. Cytotoxic killer T... Well, I said two words there. Cytotoxic T cells, but they're also known as killer T cells. Now, what they do is produce a protein called perforin. And as the name implies, perforin perforates cell membranes of infected cells. So it allows uncontrolled movement of substances in and out. And by doing that, it destroys that cell in the process. It also uh, stimulates the production of memory T cells, and they will remain in the blood and the tissue fluid ready to respond to future infection. Now, that's one of the key aspects to immunization. The other key effect of all of this is B cell activation. This gives rise to what we call humoral immunity. B cells with antibodies on their outer surface are already present in the blood. This is one fact that students don't always appreciate when uh, teaching the topic of vaccines and immunity. It's not that B cells just randomly appear when you give someone the vaccine or the injection. They've been there all along, waiting, pretty much. That's one way to look at it, I guess. That's one way that I look at it. When an antigen with a specific complementary shape to that antibody is present, the two attach to one another. And then the antigen is taken into the cell. And there's a name we call that. It's endocytosis. We take it inside, endo in, into the cell. We then have this antigen presentation again. And we get activation of B cells. So I'll just talk you through that process. The B cells would process the antigen and then present them on their outer surface, just as I've described earlier. But now what we have are those helper T cells binding to the antigen, and that activates the B cell. So before it was the T cell, the T helper cell that needed switching on. But now what we're going to do is take that switched on T helper cell and use it to switch on our B cell. And the activated B cell will divide again by mitosis to form a clone of what we call plasma B cells. There's a name we give to this particular process, and it's called clonal selection. Now, technically, when I said the T cells divide by mitosis, that is I, that is mitosis um, in the same manner that this is. So the B cells are dividing by mitosis in exactly the same way that the T cells are, but we only really use the term clonal selection to describe the cell division of these B cells. Think of it like a bit like this. Your body has selected that clone of cells. That B cell wouldn't have been activated if the T helper cell wasn't there. And that was only activated because it recognised the specific antigen that was given in the vaccine. Your body through a series of events, has selected, in a way, the very cells it needs to proliferate. That's one way of looking at it. These plasma B cells will only survive a few days, but they produce large amounts of antibodies specific, there's that word again, to the invading pathogen. Now, this is what we call the primary or the first immune response. This is why, uh, ultimately, we vaccinate people. What you get are memory cells produced, and they remain after infection, and they provide the long-term immunity. This is the whole point of vaccinating someone, to generate these antibodies and to create these memory cells. They will circulate in the blood and tissue fluid and divide rapidly into plasma cells to produce antibodies when the pathogen is next encountered. 
it gives rise to what we call our secondary immune response. Memory cells don't have a particularly long shelf life, hence the need for boosters. You might have heard of booster jabs, which some of you listening may very well have uh, needed to take. For completeness sake, I should just point out that antibodies that you produce after a vaccine don't kill any pathogens. They help, for sure, but they don't do the damage. Antibodies don't do the damage. Antibodies can coat virus particles, preventing them from entering host cells in the first place. They can clump pathogens together, particularly bacterial cells, together, and that's called agglutination. And what it does, it makes it easier for phagocytes to locate, to recognise, and then destroy the pathogens. And they can also neutralise toxins that bacteria can produce. So that's how antibodies work. The antibodies don't directly kill the pathogens, but in they have these a myriad of mechanisms that ultimately will result in pathogen destruction. So there we've had quite a technical look at vaccines and exactly what happens in the body when you get one. But vaccines offer a very specific type of immunity. It's an active artificial type of immunity. Let me explain what I mean by that by looking at four key words here active passive natural and artificial so active refers to when an individual makes his or her own antibodies against the pathogen this type of immunity is really it's quite slow to develop but it is long lasting passive is simply when an individual is i guess the easiest way to think about it is it's they're given like ready-made antibodies as such no memory white blood cells have been produced, so the immunity is short-lasting, but it is immediate. Natural is just simply a term used to describe when you've naturally acquired the immunity, so it's obtained through, say, usual circumstances, whereas artificial is when it's been received ultimately by external means, where you've had an induced immune response that is asymptomatic. So you don't have any symptoms, but you've deliberately almost induced that immune uh, outcome. Now, in the case of a vaccine, it does not cause disease, but antibodies still get produced, giving immunity against the same pathogen. So we, we can say that vaccinations are both active because we're actively having to produce the antibodies, yet artificial because we're inducing it. When you give someone a vaccine, you are artificially inducing that immune response. In comparison, when a person contracts a disease normally and survives, they are making the antibodies and now are immune to the infection by the same pathogen. Now that, we would say, is active natural immunity. Breastfeeding is a good example of passive natural immunity. Antibodies pass to baby via breast milk. Now, the baby is temporarily, or temporarily rather, immune to certain pathogens and if i think of the, the kind of final category when you receive antibodies stored as serum or like an antitoxin for example that's classed as passive artificial means of immunity it's used if if a disease is too fast acting for the immune system to deal with so for example um, anti-tetanus antibodies might be given following a deep cut or a wound it's temporary as the body is not making their own antibodies so I just wanted to explain where those four words, natural, artificial, active and passive, uh, come from. So vaccines are an active, artificial manner of acquiring immunity. So I'd like to finish this podcast by looking at what determines how successful vaccination programmes actually are. What makes it good? Well, 
ultimately, when can we say that a vaccination program has been successful? How do we know? What, what's our measure of success? Well, there are fairly obvious indicators. High uptake, so people actually having the vaccine. Minimal, if any, side effects. Limited spread of infection. Greatly reduced death rates. Low cost. Even high availability of the vaccine in the first place. So access to that vaccine. I think if we go back to the statistic I mentioned at the start of the podcast, 10 million deaths prevented in just a five-year period. I personally think the efficacy of vaccines, really with that statistic, just cannot be questioned. It's worth mentioning as well something called herd immunity. Herd immunity is a form of indirect protection from infectious disease that occurs when a large percentage of a population has become immune to that infection. So therefore, or thereby, it provides a kind of measure of protection for individuals who are not immune. Realistically, vaccinating an entire population might prove difficult to do for reasons that will come on shortly. So if we can vaccinate, say, 80% of a population, then we should get the desired effect, which is ultimately limiting the spread of infection, controlling in a way, that spread of infection. If you ultimately are vaccinated, then the likelihood of of an individual coming into contact with someone who can prevent it being passed on is high. Affected individuals are less likely to come across other individuals that are susceptible, basically, to infection. Now, Vaccination programmes are only effective if people follow the recommended schedule. So, for example, between the ages of two and four months, it's recommended that children receive vaccines for things like diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis or whooping cough, it's called, polio, haemophilus influenzae, the pneumococcal vaccine, and that for meningitis C. At 12 months, you're looking at vaccines for haemophilus influenza again, uh, another uh, meningitis C, HPV, the human papilloma virus vaccine, and then MMR, the measles, measles, mumps and rubella combined vaccine. And then as time progresses, you get boosters for some of these injections or or follow-ups. So like second or third injections that are required, for example. Now, I won't go into the entire vaccination schedule. But there are aspects of vaccinations that we really do need to consider, however, that might raise doubts over how successful a programme of immunisation could potentially be. And this this isn't me discussing pros and cons of vaccines. Like I said, that will come in a later podcast. But the fact is, we are unable to induce immunity in certain individuals. So, for example, those with defective immune systems. Individuals may even develop the disease in the time it takes for a vaccine to be effective. Pathogens we know are able to, for want of a better word, hide, if you like, from the immune system. So actually going inside of body cells, the way that viruses uh, do. And that may prove problematic in developing adequate vaccines in some cases. But I think the, the biggest problem that I'd like to just mention, the biggest problem that we face is antigenic variability. Spontaneous mutations of the pathogen may result in different antigens being produced. And that may, well, what that would mean is that they therefore go unrecognised by the immune system. There may just be too great a number of varieties of a single pathogen to produce an effective vaccine. And then there are the objections on the ground of medical, religious or ethical reasons. 
And here is where some of these questions may be raised, such as how acceptable is it to use animals to test vaccines? Long-term side effects may occur with vaccines. How can that risk be balanced with the risk of developing a disease that causes even greater harm? On whom would you test vaccines? Is it acceptable to trial a new vaccine with unknown health risks in a country where the disease is most common on the basis that the population there has the most to gain? Should vaccines be made compulsory? Should expensive vaccination programmes continue for diseases that are almost eradicated? I mean, these are just a few of the questions that some people may ask, and I'll look forward to addressing some of them later down the line, as I said. For now, though, I hope that you feel a little bit more informed about what a vaccine actually is and what happens in the body when you administer one. On that note, I'd like to thank everyone for listening. Until next time.